Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher and I'm joined from Napa Valley, California by Austin Allison, who's the founder and CEO of Picasso. Now, Austin began selling real estate at the age of 18 and worked in the residential and commercial real estate sector for a decade. He's probably best known for founding a company called Dotloop, which was sold to Zillow back in 2015 for around $120 million. Austin, fantastic to see you. Thanks a lot for coming on to Bosscast this week. Tell us about Picasso. What problems are you solving and why should people in the real estate market be excited about what you're up to. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here today. So yeah, about Picasso, but before I answer that, maybe I could just give a little bit of context of my background. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I grew up in a real estate family because my dad was a carpenter. So by the time I was three or four years old, I had a hammer in my hand. And that led to purchasing my first home when I was 17 years old. It was a modest home. I put $4,000 down on it to buy a $40,000 property. And that was kind of my start into real estate investing. And then I started selling real estate when I was 18 years old and sold all through college and then went to law school after undergrad. And that really led to my first company, Dotloop, which was about digitizing real estate transactions. And we sold to Zillow, as you mentioned. And along the way, that journey provided my wife and I with an opportunity to become second homeowners. Prior to that, you know, I'd always dreamed of owning a second home, but it was not a reality because I couldn't afford it. But when we were finally able to afford it, it was just such a life changer for us. Owning that second home really empowered us to live a better life. We met new friends. We became part of the community. You know, we developed these rituals that became really meaningful to our family. And Mm. I was selling a company to Zillow probably helped as well, right? uh, Well, it it definitely (laughs) did help. But interestingly, we bought this home before I sold Zillow. So I was still on a, you know, startup founder budget. I mean, we had to deplete all of our savings to put down on the home and we had to rent the home out on Airbnb to pay the mortgage. So it was a massive stretch. I put all of my eggs in this basket. Uh, So where was this home? It was in Lake Tahoe, just a couple hundred miles north of uh, San Francisco. (laughs) I should have guessed. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, this home was just life changing for us. And I realized that I wasn't the only one that dreamed of living a better life. So I wanted to find a way to make this possible for more people. And one of the really important things I learned about second home ownership through this experience, Andrew, is that most second homes sit empty 90% of the time. And that creates a lot of downstream problems. It makes it harder for people to afford second homes. It starves local communities because there aren't owners in the homes, you know, occupying the restaurants and the markets year round, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole idea behind Picasso was what if we could find a way to empower people to right size their ownership, only buy the amount of the house that you actually need while making better use of all these empty second homes that are sitting around the world, of which there are many. So that's kind of how Picasso came about and why real estate agents should be excited about it is it's a great new tool that real estate professionals can use in their toolkit to convert more home shoppers to home owners. Because there's a lot of people out there who aspire to own homes in these beautiful destinations that have been priced out of buying homes because of home price appreciation and interest rates. So Picasso enables people to afford a lot more home than they would otherwise be able to afford on their own. And we eliminate all the headaches because we handle everything from bill pay to design, furnishing and repairs and maintenance. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, and certainly in England, the nature of second home ownership has quite a few negative connotations for various reasons, one of which you mentioned, which is that fact that they sit empty, they push up local house prices, they keep local people out of the market. And similarly, timeshares, which a lot of Brits have purchased over the years in southern Spain and in Europe, a lot of those have proven quite dodgy and not particularly good investments. So certainly something that democratizes this space and makes it more efficient, I think should be something very welcome. And that's clearly where your investors have seen an opportunity. How much depth is there in this market? And has COVID and the pandemic, has that been a proper game changer with this or is that simply a blip? Well, I think it has been an accelerant for sure. And the reason why is because COVID has introduced, you know, work from home as a reality for many families, millions of additional people today. Unless you work at Apple. That's true. There are some exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, Millions of additional families, tens of millions, if you look around the globe, have more flexibility now than they had before. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they may be working from a second home destination full time, but it certainly means that they have more flexibility to work remote, at least part time. And that has empowered people to rethink how and where they live and work. So I think COVID has definitely been an accelerant. But, you know, independent of COVID, like I started thinking about this business in 2013, when I bought my second home. So I've been thinking about this business for seven years before we started the company, long before the pandemic. And long before the pandemic, many people have aspired to own second homes. When we survey our audience, about 75% of people we survey, so this is households above a certain income threshold, aspire to own a second home. This is a very widespread aspiration that people have once they've kind of satisfied life's basic needs of food and primary shelter, people start thinking about second home ownership. So it's a widespread dream and it's really never been possible in a responsible or accessible way because the old model of second home ownership is just broken. And I did just wanna go back to one of the points that you mentioned around kind of the empty second home problem. Like you're totally right. And, you know, anybody who's been frustrated around, you know, second home ownership in the past because of the impact on communities is right to be frustrated. The second home ownership model of the past is flawed. If you look at in central London alone, there's about $40 billion worth of vacant real estate in central London alone. So anytime you have vacant real estate, it means that locals are being priced out of being able to afford primary homes in that market because all those empty second homes are taking supply off the market. It also means that local businesses are struggling during the shoulder season. Go to any ski town you know, during the shoulder season and talk to a local restaurant. Depending on the ski town, many of the restaurants might even be closed in the shoulder season, right? So there's so many good things that come from better utilizing real estate and we have a real opportunity here to kind of change the model as it relates to home ownership in such a way that it provides a lot of opportunity for buyers, but also a lot of opportunity for communities to support their local economy, generate more tax revenue, and create more opportunity for locals who need to buy primary homes in that market. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about how it works, because you don't own the real estate, do you? Or you own it for a very short time, and you're broader revenue generation model comes through the commission that you make on the transactions and then the ongoing management fees. Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically the way that it works, the easiest way to get your mind around it, Andrew, is just imagine if 
you and three or four of your closest friends or family members decided that you wanted to own a holiday home somewhere. Let's just say Tuscany, for example. You wanted to own a place in Tuscany. You could go do this on your own. You know, you could form your own entity. You could find your own home. You could manage the property. You could design it. You could furnish it. Like co-ownership has been around for decades and decades and decades. The problem with that model, though, the DIY co-ownership model, is that there's a lot of little details and a lot of little decisions that need to be made at all times. And it's very hard to do with a group of people. So what Picasso has done is Picasso has built a service that handles all those little details so that you can just own an eighth or a quarter or even as much as a half of a second home, but you defer all responsibility of operating that home to us. So the way that it works from a business model perspective is we go out and we find properties that are of interest to our buyers. We then buy those homes and we sell them to a group of owners. Once the home is fully sold to the group of owners, Picasso, the company, retains no ownership in the property. At that point in time, we're just a property manager and we just manage the property on behalf of the owners from that point forward. You know, in your earlier point, you mentioned timeshares being a bad investment. I know there's a time and place for timeshares, so I don't want to hate on timeshares per se, but this is so much different than a timeshare. You know, it's like comparing this to a timeshare would be like comparing an asset to a liability. In this model, you own real estate. Yeah, but there are some uninformed people that think of Picasso as a timeshare platform. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. But I'm clear that it's not. Yeah, I think I'm clear it's not, but I think it's just worth reinforcing that with people. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that owning... 100% of real property, that's a big deal. Like when you just look at our resale market as an example, when people buy a Picasso, when a family buys a Picasso and then they decide to sell it a year later because they want to upgrade or downgrade or move to a different market or whatever the case might be, our units have resold on average in about 10 days from the time that they're listed for 10 to 15% more than what the buyers paid previously. Most people who buy a timeshare, on the other hand, can't even sell it because you're trying to sell a liability, not an asset. And if you are lucky enough to sell it, on average, you'll lose 50% of what you paid. So it's like owning real estate is very different than sharing time in a hotel with thousands of other people. Yeah, yeah. So where are those hot locations then currently? So for people that are looking, what are the hot spots other than obviously Lake Tahoe, which is... uh, obviously very popular with the tech community. Well, there's a lot of hotspots around the world. Fortunately for our business, you know, the market size of the opportunity here is just massive because people all over the world want to live more enriched lives and spend time in these beautiful destinations. But I mean, today we're in about 40 of them, 40 destinations around the world across four countries, the US, Mexico, the UK, and Spain. And Basically, our decisions around destinations are buyer-led, meaning we have millions of people that visit our website, thousands of people at any given point in time talking to our sales team about where they want to own a second home. And we use all that feedback that we get from buyers to determine which markets to enter. So the markets that we're in are really just a byproduct of where our customers have told us to go. Long term... So do you opportunistically go and acquire property in those places then? Yeah, but it's not speculative. It's really driven by what our buyers need. So, like, uh, yeah, no, no, I get that. But my point is that you'd acquire property X in a particular location based on searches, I'm assuming, but before someone else has paid you any money. Yeah, that's exactly right. We basically invest, you know, we've raised 
230-ish million dollars in equity, most of which is still sitting on our balance sheet. You know, fortunately, the business has been quite capital efficient in a short period of you time. come and buy some British property. The currency would give you a great deal. Uh, right I know, now. finally. <laughs> it, I mean, it's about time our, our currency caught up. 10% but, cheaper than it was about six months right, ago. Right, right. But in addition to the equity, we've secured more than a billion dollars of debt that we have access to. So that gives us a lot of purchasing power to go identify great properties, get them under contract and make them available to our buyers. But it's also possible for second homeowners who own 100% of their home, but only use it 10% of the time, which is the norm, it's possible for those types of families to actually sell their home through Picasso as well, where you could decide to sell 50% or 75% of your home, and we'll just bring the buyers to you and fill out the ownership syndicate. So those are the two ways that properties come into our system. One, we go out and identify them and actually buy the home and then sell it down. The other way is sellers will bring properties to us and also developers or home builders will bring properties to us and sell them down. Yeah, like I'm guessing in a down market, it's probably a really good way for new developers or developers of new buildings to have another outlet to sell them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, developers really love this model because it gives them access to a whole new cohort of buyers. Like number one, there's a lot more people who can afford to own an eighth or a quarter of a home when compared to people who can afford you know, 100% of a home that they're only going to use 10% of the time. So it's a larger market. But the other thing that's interesting is that even for people who can afford a whole second home, this is oftentimes a much smarter and more responsible way to own real estate. Because even if you can afford it, it's kind of crazy to own 100% of something that you're only going to use 10% of the time because of all the waste, mm. you know, and all the downstream consequences that empty second well, homes have. Unless you rent it out. Unless you, you yeah, know, unless you rent it out. Airbnb and, that's a different story. Yeah. But not everybody so wants to do that. So how much do you hold? No, no, that's true. And, it, and it's a pain in the butt, as we all know. So I guess once you stabilize the business, how much real estate will you have on your books at any one point in time? I, I just want to get a measure of what degree you're a tech platform business versus being a company that has quite a strong direct exposure. Because that's obviously been something that other businesses have suffered from, right? The, the fact that they've been speculating on the market and it's not quite worked out. Right, yeah. This business is very different than that. We're, and you uh, know who I'm talking about, right? I, I, won't, I won't use names, but I can connect dots. So we're a tech-enabled marketplace. You know, basically we've built a marketplace and a series of tech-enabled services that enable people to co-own property in this way. Like, you know, many of the homes that come onto our platform you know, we don't ever buy, as I mentioned, you know, sellers or developers will just bring the homes directly to us. We aggregate the owners and just like a normal marketplace would, like if you use the most basic farmer's market as an example, you know, you create a space where vendors can come into the market and set up shop and make their service available or product available for sale. And then buyers come into the marketplace and transact. So Picasso is effectively doing the same thing. We're identifying these homes that make a great fit you know, for our model, because they have the right, you know, attributes or location or whatever the case might be, that's of interest to our buyers. Mm. And then we connect them with buyers who want to co-own these properties together. So we're a marketplace and we're a tech enabled one. But to answer your specific question around, you know, how much real estate we hold at any given point in time, you know, it's minimal relative to the scale of the marketplace. And the larger we get, you know, the more properties that come onto our marketplace, the smaller 
that ratio is of inventory that we hold at any given point in time. Mm. And that makes sense. So how does the model translate? Because essentially what you're doing is you're doing all of the back end work, creating the legal structures and the contracts. And when you're buying and selling real estate for your platform, you're actually selling shares in the company, aren't you, rather than the property. And one of the things that anyone in England, where we're in London and France and Europe will be very familiar with is the sheer time and red tape and just nonsense that comes with transacting real estate. And that's something you're trying to even out by making it transact at a corporate level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, buying real estate, particularly if you're buying internationally in a country where you don't live and have citizenship, is difficult. I mean, even buying a home in your own country, as you know, is very difficult. Like in the US, it can take 60 to 90 days to close on a property when you go through the whole title process and mortgage financing, et cetera, et cetera. Parts of Europe can take six months. I mean, it wouldn't be crazy to see some markets that take a year, you know, to find the right property and get through the transaction. So it is a, the traditional real estate purchase process is very, time consuming and inefficient, you know, by today's standards. Picasso has reinvented that entire process. With Picasso, you could come onto our website this morning, or I guess this evening, your time, but morning, my time. You could come onto our website in the morning, identify the property of your dreams, and you can be a legal owner of that property same day. I mean, that's how easy mm. and how fast we've made the transaction process. And what, and the, what about international buyers? If I actually wanted to do that, and I love Lake Tahoe, I'd love to own a property there or a bit of one. How does it work for foreigners coming into the States? I guess it's less easy than it possibly was. Well, what time is it there right now? 4 p.m.? Yeah, 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 4.45. So, you know, 4.45, you could go on our website right now and find the home of your dreams in Lake Tahoe. I could connect you with our sales team and you could be an owner of that property basically by the end of the day, <laughs> our time. So morning, your time. It really is that easy. And that includes financing, by the way, because we also provide financing. So if you wish to buy that home in Tahoe for say, let's say it's a $300,000 share. So you know, you're know you buying one eighth of a $2 million home for $300,000. We offer 70% financing. So you only have to put 30% down. So for $90,000 down, you can own one eighth of a $2 million property in Lake Tahoe and that entire transaction can be done in a day. And the reason why we're able to make that so seamless is because we do so much work on the front end. You know, we buy the property, we set up the whole legal structure, like we've got this proven model and this framework now that's been proven out over lots and lots and lots of markets and customers. And it just makes it really seamless for anybody who wants to own a home with us. Mm. And this sounds like the sort of tech that should be much more prevalent right across the space. And we had a colleague, an old friend uh, from uh, who works at Zoopla, one of the UK's leading portals, talking similarly about the opportunity to do this in conveyancing and estate agency. And going back to your dot loop days, what are the opportunities to spread all of this stuff out and help the wider market to be much more functional? Well, change takes time. I mean, that's the first thing that I'll say. And sometimes it takes time for good reason because like real estate transactions are, you know, it's a pretty serious transaction. It's a big deal. You want to get it right. 
And there's a lot of steps in the traditional process that are there for a reason and that have evolved over a period of decades to get to where they are. So it's not as easy as just like, you know, snapping your fingers and introducing a new technology and having, you know, everything turn into magic. In my experience, these things take time, you know, for change to really be adopted and to infiltrate an industry. Dot Loop is a great example of this. Like we, along with DocuSign, were pioneering e-signatures. DocuSign started in 2003. The e-signature act was passed in the United States anyway in 2000 by the Clinton administration. Dot Loop started in 2009. So we were basically six years behind DocuSign, nine years behind the legalization of e-signatures. And it still took four years before anyone would take us seriously in the real estate industry. I mean, for the first four years, we got lawsuits, legal threats. You know, people said that e-signatures weren't legal, that they weren't enforceable, that they invited fraud. I mean, there was so much resistance to this new idea that, you know, for most rational people, when you look at this concept of digitizing real estate documents, it seems pretty intuitive, right? It seems sort of inevitable that real estate transactions would eventually become digitalized. But yet the whole industry resisted it for a long, long time. So I think anytime you're introducing change or introducing a category that feels new or different, you know, it takes time to be understood. And, you know, there's resistance, some of which is healthy, that needs to be overcome. And that's just kind of the process of evolution and innovation and change. Yeah. And how open do you think the market is to that change? Because if you think about everything that's moved forward in multiple sectors, really, from e-commerce, insurance, broader financial services, obviously, we've been witnessing the Robin Hood revolution over the last couple of years, but real estate and construction still seems stuck, largely in the 19th century, right? We're still building homes and transacting on paper and using the same methods that we were doing over a century ago. So I think most of the industry does want to change. I mean, in my experience, I've been involved in the real estate industry, as we discussed, for my entire life, you know, and I've been involved in it in like a professional way since I was, I guess, you know, 18 when I started selling real estate and I'm 37 now. So like 19 years I've been involved in the industry. And in my experience over those 19 years is that real estate and, you know, construction people are entrepreneurs, you know, they're business owners. And you know, they tend to be pretty innovative and pretty open to new ideas. So I don't think it's like industry resistance to change. I mean, there's there's obviously always a cohort of people who resist everything, right? The people who resisted e-signatures, the people who resisted electric cars, you know, the people who resist co-ownership. Like, there's always a cohort of people that just resist change. That's just kind of the way that it works. But generally speaking, I think most people that I've interacted with in the real estate industry tend to be very interested in change and evolution, but it takes time. You know, the system is so complex and interconnected that in order for something to change, like, you know, digitizing real estate transactions in the UK, as an example, seems easy yeah, on yeah. the surface to like implement that change. There's obviously plenty of technology available to do that, but to really pull that off at scale, a lot of constituents need to be part of that process to turn the entire industry. What's unique about our situation is given the nature of our model, where we actually take ownership of the home, we're able to put it into our own ecosystem in our own marketplace. And when we bring the home into our marketplace, 
you know, we're transacting in the traditional way, just like any other whole home buyer would. But once it's in our ecosystem and on our ownership framework, we're able to control enough of the pieces around how the transaction works that we're able to make it seamless for the customer. So I think innovations like that do help, you know, to nudge industries along and inspire people to embrace new technologies more quickly. But as a general rule, I just think it takes time for big change to transpire in an industry because of the complexity and interconnectedness of these industries. And what are some of the other innovations that you're excited by, whether we're talking about fintech, prop tech, forget any of the nonsense tags that people give stuff. Just shout out to any businesses or innovations that you see moving the dial for people or for businesses? Well, there's so many of these that I could shout out. So I'll apologize in advance. Give us the three coolest ones. I would say, and this is obviously beyond co-ownership. So co-ownership is my world. So that's one that I really bullish on. Outside of that, I would say all forms of like sustainable prefab construction, I think are really, really interesting. Like in order for us to get out of this housing crisis that we're in, there's really only two things we can do, build more homes or make better use of existing homes, which we're, you know, doing through co-ownership. But on the build more homes front, you know, it's hard and expensive to build homes quick enough to meet the needs of buyers in many of these markets. And it also, you know, consumes a lot of energy and exerts a lot of carbon, you know, through the traditional model. So I think any innovation that makes home building faster, cheaper, and more sustainable, and there's lots of examples of companies that are doing that, I think is super cool and super necessary. I think ADUs, auxiliary dwelling units, are also, I don't know how big of a deal this is in the UK, but it's a really big deal in the US because we have all these empty yards, you know, lawns that are just sitting there underutilized and we have a housing shortage. So if you can empower someone to put a unit on their lawn and create inventory that creates new opportunity for locals who need to buy primary homes, you know, that's really interesting. And it also creates supplemental income for the owner of the property that's putting the ADU on. So I think there's a lot of work around ADUs, not just building the ADUs, but you know zoning innovation to make ADUs more accessible and mainstream. I would say those are probably the two biggest that come to mind. And if I had to pick a third, you know, it would probably be something around you know smart homes. I think that we've come a long way with respect to homes becoming more automated and more sustainable and more efficient, but man, do we have a long way to go. Like, I don't know how long it's going to take, but, you know, if I'm looking into a crystal ball 5, 10, 20 years from now, certainly 20 years from now, hopefully it's much faster, but 20 years from now, like, you know, homes should be so automated, so efficient, you know, the the utilization of and, and consumption of energy and the use of renewable and more sustainable energy sources in homes. Like, there's just so much opportunity. And right now, homes are still you know, very antiquated. Even the smartest of homes with the latest and greatest technology are still pretty antiquated when you think about it in the context of how innovative and advanced the rest of our lives are. Mm, mm. Absolutely. And in terms, I suppose, of the economic outlook, things are very different in the US versus the UK in terms of the fact that you have much longer financing terms than we do here. Typical UK mortgages two to five years versus the 30-year periods that can be quite standard in the States. Do you see there being much of a hit either to the wider housing market or to your piece within it from everything that's happening at the minute globally? 
You know, markets go up, markets go down. And I've not lived through a ton of these cycles, but I was old enough to remember, you know, 2000 and 2001. I wasn't in the workforce yet, but I was certainly old enough to remember it. And I experienced a global financial crisis firsthand. You know, I basically kind of started Dot Loop in 2008. We launched in 2009. This is right in the middle of the GFC. By many, you know, standards or opinions, one would say that wasn't a great time to launch a company, particularly a real estate company in the middle of the GFC. So, you know, I've seen markets go up and down. And, you know, in my experience, these challenging macroeconomic times tend to present more opportunity than problems. If you have the right team, the right company culture, you know, in the ability to kind of act with agility and evolve in such a way that you're able to kind of meet the needs of the current market. So, you know, I, I think kind of the near-term impact is there's certainly more people out there that have lower balances in their retirement accounts or savings accounts now than they did before. You know, mm-hmm. people feel less wealthy and that impacts consumer confidence and it certainly impacts the way that people think about big purchases like real estate. So I do expect the transaction volume will continue to be slow. It's already cooled off and I think it'll continue to be slow for a while. But frankly, that's probably healthy because, you know, we just got off the kind of the longest bull run that we've had on record and that can't go into perpetuity. At some point in time, the market has to cool off. So I think a lot of this is healthy. Interest rates are another big thing that certainly has impact. And especially when you layer on home price appreciation. I mean, if you look back at a home that you could have bought five years ago, and this is what I'm about to say is true in you know, almost every market, at least any hot market around the globe. Yeah, yeah. And you look at the affordability of that home now compared to five years ago, you know, it's like three times more expensive. When you factor in home price appreciation, which is more than doubled, and in a lot of our markets, home price appreciation more than doubled just in the last two years. So if you look back over five years, it's even more than that. And then you layer on the impact of interest rates. Yeah, there's some really crazy stuff that's been happening in, in places like Miami. Exactly. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's nuts. nuts it? So, you know, fewer people are going to be able to afford homes. Now, that on the surface, you could look at as a negative for the real estate industry. But for Picasso, it's actually kind of a positive, ironically, because it means that co-ownership makes even more sense for families today than it did before. Because the alternative to co-owning a home with Picasso is to buy the whole thing. And with interest rates and HPA, whole homes are just that much less affordable when compared to what they were before. So Picasso is the low cost, responsible alternative for home ownership. And we're seeing a lot of families migrate from their whole homes into co-owned homes as a result of what's happening in the market. So long-winded way of saying, you know, there will be some headwinds, there will be some tailwinds. I think the companies who have a great team and a great culture and have the ability to act with agility will emerge stronger on the other side of this. And that's a quick thing to pick up because you know, you've been recognized for being one of the best workplaces in the real estate industry as a piece in fortune. You rank number four in that list. What are some of the things that anybody listening to this can take away for their businesses? So what are the things that you as a founder of two successful businesses that you drive through the culture of your business? Because this is more than just flexible working and great coffee, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, in my experience, there are no like silver bullets or absolute shortcuts in business or in life. But if there were a shortcut to great business results, 
it would be hiring the right people, empowering those people to do their best work, and to make sure that everybody in the company is kind of rowing together in pursuit of the same mission. Those are kind of the three legs of the stool that I've found to be you know, really beneficial when it comes to building a great company culture, whether it's a culture that's in the office or a culture that's distributed. And for me, the right people really comes down to two things. I mean, obviously you want people who have the right skills and experience, but that's kind of table stakes. If you look beyond that, we look for people who are really passionate about our mission and people who are positive. And the reason why those two things are important is when you have someone that's incredibly passionate about their work, they end up doing better work. And that translates into you know a great fit over time. The positivity thing is important because negativity is like cancer in an organization. And when you have people who think about the world through a lens of the glass being half full as opposed to half empty, you know, it, it just breeds a more productive environment. People lift each other up. And, you know, within the team, one plus one equals something much greater than two. And then making sure that people are working on the right things. That's all about rolling everything up to the mission. So I start every company letter, every company meeting, every board meeting by reciting our mission, which is to enrich lives by making second home ownership possible and enjoyable for more people. And the reason why I do that is because that's the most important thing. And everybody in the company needs to be working on something that rolls up to the mission. And if we're all doing that, it's kind of like being on a big rowboat where everybody's just like perfectly in sync, rowing in the right direction. You end up going faster, right? In the race, as opposed to people being misaligned or kind of not working on things that contribute to the mission. And the final point around the environment is you got to empower people to do their best work. And this goes back to the you know best place to work awards that we're fortunate enough to get recognized for on a regular basis. I mean, and it's a lot of small things. It's like transparent communication is a big one. It's, you know, helping people to think about and manage work-life balance. It's servant leadership. You know, it used to be that people and leaders thought that employees worked for leaders. I think that's completely wrong. I think leaders work for the teams. You know, the most important question I ask in all of my one-on-ones with my direct report is, is there anything else I can do for you to make your job easier? So I think if you think about the world in that way, you can empower great people to do great work and good business results tend to follow that. Mm. Well, that's some fantastic advice there, Austin. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for taking the time. And when can we expect to see you out here in England and across Europe? You've had a couple of initial listings, haven't you, in Chelsea and West London? Yeah, we have. So right now, throughout Europe and the UK, we're in Spain and London. And we're just focused on existing markets at the moment. So no new markets to announce at this point in time. But since you asked about London, I mean, London's been awesome. I mean, the the first home that we brought on on London sold out super quickly. The other one that we're working through right now is also selling very fast. I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about London, but I think probably the most interesting thing is that it's such an international market. Like, you know, people all over the world think about London and many people all over the world aspire to own in London. So we're seeing, you know, expats in London that have moved away that need to come back for their family, buy in London. We're seeing people who live in the US, but, you know, just love London as a city and want to be able to spend a handful of weeks or months a year there. So it's just a very, very broad market in terms of who it appeals to. And obviously kind of one of the world cities that 
you know, has a lot to offer. So really excited about London. And, you know, in the future, when the time is right, we hope to have lots of destinations all throughout Europe. Mm. Well, exciting times ahead. And it sounds like a really, really fantastic trajectory for you guys. So thank you once again, Austin Allison, founder and CEO at Picasso. Thanks for taking the time to join us from the States and really, really exciting to hear about a new disruptive force in the residential market. You can tune in and you can subscribe to PropCast on Amazon, on Apple, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, do just search PropCast. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, I've been Andrew Teacher and we'll join you and hear you and see you very, very soon. Thanks very much.